Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. In each episode of the Bridge Builder, we help you live your baptismal call to be a faithful citizen, connecting faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is my co-host, Rachel Herbeck, Minnesota Catholic Conference Policy and Outreach Coordinator. Glad to be here, Jason. It's going to be an awesome show like we always have, so thanks, Rachel. Um, First of all, a big thank you to our sponsor, Relevant Radio, 1330 AM, for the use of their recording studio, and to our sponsor for this episode of the Bridge Builder Podcast, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. In today's podcast, we're going to take a look at some of the legislative priorities of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops in Congress as we speak with Lauren McCormick, who is the director of the USCCB's Office of Government Relations. In our classic Catholic social teaching segment, we're going back to look at Pope St. John Paul II's very first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis, the Redeemer of Man, that he wrote at the very early part of his pontificate in 1979. So we're looking at the 40th anniversary of that document today and how it still speaks to us about boldly proclaiming Christ as the Redeemer of Man and the key to the mystery of all aspects of human life, particularly in our modern world. Then finally, in our bricklayer segment, Rachel will share a little bit about uh, ways in which you can stay better informed about what's going on at our state capitol. Rachel, give us a preview of what we're going to hear. Yeah, so we've really hit the ground running and are well into legislative session. And so bills have been introduced. And so, you know, these are the things that um, are facing Minnesota um, and the things that legislators are going to be voting on, the things that your representatives and your senator are going to be um, considering. And so it's really important that we know what's happening, you know, not only maybe the p- particular issue that you're concerned about, but how do we how do we stay ab- abreast of what's happening? So we're going to talk about that. Minnesota Catholic Conference focuses primarily on state-based issues, but we also work with Congress as well. But uh, we're really, uh, our champion in Congress is the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and their staff, particularly the Office of Government Relations, who works with the various departments to craft a legislative agenda for the Church in the United States. Today on the line, calling in from Washington, D.C., uh, Lauren McCormick is with us. Lauren is acting director of the Office of Government Relations for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and a skilled public policy advocate and a longtime veteran of the Hill. Lauren, great to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Jason and Rachel. It's great to be on. Lauren, one of, you know, one of the questions I get asked, and I'm sure you get asked often, is how on earth do we end up in these jobs working as public policy advocates for the church? Um, how does one become acting director of government relations for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops? Share with us a little bit about yourself and your journey through politics to where you are now. Well, it started closer to where you are in Missouri. I am originally a Missourian and grew up there, ended up going to D.C. during high school, fell in love with the city, the history of our country, such a central place for uh, the legislature and the Capitol and the White House and all of that. Ended up going to college out here and after college interned for my Missouri congressman in the House and landed a job with my senator from Missouri, um, and just really loved the public policy work. Uh, During my time working in the Senate, I was in the Senate for seven years working for Senator Blunt of Missouri. I got to focus on specifically pro-life and religious freedom policy, which were two areas that not a lot of policy staff get to focus on. 
Um, absolutely love that work, working for Missourians and engaging in public policy in D.C. And this opportunity came up where I could not only work on public policy, but do it in a way that totally aligns with my Catholic faith and had the privilege of coming over here to USCCB. And it's funny because when I was in the Senate, I worked a lot on the Respect for Rights of Conscience Act in 2012, which was the big HHS mandate debate. So I was sitting on the other side of the table from the bishop's advocates at the time, the Office of Government Relations staff, and here I am now sitting on the other side of that table. So it's a real privilege, and um, it's it's been great also to work with the large Catholic Church, uh, really getting to know people in all 50 states who are doing similar work like you and Rachel are at the state capitol in Minnesota. Yeah, that's great. We were, we were just talking to kind of fit into your story. We were just talking. Um, you never really know how what you're doing now is going to prepare you for what God has for you and, and just the, the way that all of our journeys build on build on itself to really be prepared for what you're doing now. Um, so that's great. So government relations, you know, that's a that's kind of seems like a big thing for people. So can you break it down a little bit and maybe talk about for our listeners, like what does your day to day look like? You know, what does it look like to relate with the government? Um, so kind of what does your day to day entail? I spend about half of my time talking directly to members of Congress and their staff sharing USCCB's position on legislation, doing introductory meetings, um, things like that. And then about the other half of my time is spent preparing for those conversations to happen. There is a high level of collaboration among all of our policy offices inside of USCCB, making sure that we're representing the full voice of the church, all of the different aspects of public policy. That takes a lot of work. Um, and we also make sure we're, we're coordinating with folks out in the states. Uh, if we're talking to a particular senator from that state, making sure we understand the church's footprint in that district. And then we're also working with our national Catholic partners, groups like Catholic Charities, Catholic Relief Services, so that we have a unified unified message in Congress on the public policy issues of concern to the church. Lauren, as you describe your day to day and uh, sort of the some of the door to door sales that we all have to do as lobbyists and, and government relations officers, what what's the biggest challenge you encounter uh, on a day to day basis in your work for the U.S. Bishops Conference? Certainly, the abuse crisis over the last year has been really difficult. Uh, uh, are, that's been really has needed to be the number one priority of the church during this time. It continues to be. I think the other challenge that I've experienced has been the sheer size of the church in the U.S. and the sheer size of Congress. Uh, working in the Senate for so long, I felt like I had a pretty good grasp on Congress and the, all the senators. Um, but then you step out of the Hill and you look at the big picture of the Capitol of hundreds of members of Congress that are on the Hill every day that uh, we're trying to reach. It's, it's, it's a huge undertaking. Um, and I'm just one person at the end of the day. So it, it requires a team of people to get that message up to the Hill and making sure that we're influencing different legislation as it comes up. That size aspect that you mentioned and, you know, that experience of feeling like I'm just one person, I think that's something that a lot of people in the pew experience. You know, as somebody working for a state Catholic conference and working a lot with people 
um, in the pews, you know, going across the state. When it comes to advocacy, um, that's a thing that people experience. You know, it's too big. How could I begin to get involved? And so, you know, from your perspective as someone in D.C., can the people in, in the pew still make a difference with lawmakers in D.C.? Or um, has it become an insider's game, which is what some people in the pew are really feeling? I don't think so at all. I think uh, people in the pew absolutely do make a difference. And I think it's only getting better with technology and social media, how, how much easier it is to get on the phone, get uh, get in touch directly with your member of Congress, find out information about the positions that they've taken in the past. Um, and one of the great examples of this actually just happened this week. We hosted our annual Catholic Social Ministry Gathering. Rachel, which I know you were able to participate in, yeah, hundreds of Catholics uh, coming to D.C., doing Hill visits, learning about specifically the social ministry aspect of our public policy positions, and uh, having those meetings with Hill members. It's it's great, and I think um, more more and more people are getting involved in that every year, so it's great to see kind of that increase in the participation. Yeah, absolutely. Just a, a follow-up um, on that. For those who, you know, maybe can't make it to D.C. or, you know, who feel like, okay, my congressperson is kind of untouchable because they're not in the state much anymore or, um, you know, they're far away in D.C. For those who can't go to something like that, what is, you know, maybe a practical suggestion that you would give them to, you know, maybe start or, or maintain a relationship with the people um, in Congress? I think the easiest thing to just start with is liking your senators and your congressmen's Facebook page pages mm. or following them on Twitter or Instagram, whatever you do for social media, because all of us are on social media one way or the other. Sure. And just just looking at what they're saying, get, getting familiar with their tone and their message, um, following that is a great place to start. And maybe that week you don't have anything to say. You There's not really anything that comes up, but there's going to be a day when something you care about is going to come up and you can speak into that. So just having that easy connection through so social media is, a, is the first way to start. And then um, when something comes up that you want to weigh in on, it makes it that much easier. You're familiar with the member, what they've been working on, and you can speak into that. And I think that that's one thing for legislators that they appreciate. Um, they they do want that engagement with folks who are watching and listening, and not just um, not just saying something one time, but having more of the longer term engagement um, on the public policy that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lauren, in your experience, and you've got great experience working on the Hill, and you know one of the best things about working for the church is that we're compelled to work with everybody and talk to everybody and on both sides, especially on both sides, of the aisle, Democrats, Republicans, we have an agenda that transcends the partisan divide. So we talk to a lot of different people, but in your experience, what makes a really effective member of Congress? Um, what sets some congresspersons apart from others? Genuine concern for people. I, I would say, I think when you meet a member of Congress that just you're, reaction is wow this this person is really listening to me 
that is the sign of a good member of Congress. And the other, the other thing I can speak to as, as a former staffer is the way a member treats their staff, the, the value of the dignity of work that's provided in their office, I think translates to the level of care that they bring to their legislative work and their constituent services. Um, it, and underlying all of that, I think, is um, a sense of hope. D.C. has, some people say D.C. is a very hope-filled city filled with people who have hope, and I think that that's true for the the large numbers of members in Congress. And so um, that genuine concern for people combined with hope um, really does wonders for um, their ability to engage on public policy. Mm, yeah, that's huge. So, Lauren, what are um, what are some of the things you're working on? What are what are the key advocacy priorities um, for the USCCB, and how do you see those um, playing out here? I'll start with the issue that's really been on the forefront in the past week, which is the national debate around late-term abortion with the legislation that was signed into law in New York and the comments made by um, Virginia Governor Ralph Norfolk last last week. So we are pushing for the Senate to hold a vote on the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, common sense bill that would ensure a child born alive in an attempted abortion would be transported to a hospital and receive the same degree of care to preserve the life of that child as any other child born at the same gestational age. Um, So we're pushing for a vote on that. We really want to see where all 100 senators stand on that legislation. Um, Certainly a permanent legislative solution for temporary protected status holders and for all DREAMers continues to be vital. We continue to make that point in all of the ongoing conversations about um, the border debate and the appropriations negotiations that are underway on the Department of Homeland Security funding bill. Um, Responding to anti-Catholic religious tests imposed on nominees to public office, uh, we were really concerned by questioning in the Senate Judiciary Committee in the past several months um, by Catholic questioning directed at Catholic nominees, and, and so we've been monitoring and responding, responding to that without taking a position on any particular nomination. And in terms of the safety net, uh, making sure that whatever Congress does with the budget this year is reflective of strong funding for affordable housing, mental and physical health care, and especially international aid and development. Those are big, uh, big priorities in terms of federal budget. And um, the other things that I'll mention, so we are working to repeal a new tax on churches and nonprofits that was included in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. This was a Republican tax cut bill from two years ago, and um, it's, it, it's a big bill for churches and nonprofits that is, is just should not be there, and we're actually concerned about it, not only from a financial perspective, but also from a religious freedom perspective. So as if we didn't have enough on our our list, we've (laughs) got uh, this tax on our parking lots that we've got to deal with. So those are some of the things I'm working on right now. Well, that's important because it it saps away needed resources and, and vital resources for serving people in need, right? And that's why, at least at the state level here in Minnesota, there's constitutional prohibitions on taxing 
faith-based ministries and churches. So uh, hopefully we'll see that uh, resolved at the federal level. I hope so. And I, I am feeling fairly confident. Um, but I think the question is, is timing. Things always take a little bit longer than you want them to. So, um, But we're keep trying to keep that up at the forefront. Lauren, in Congress, um, you have the challenge this uh, congressional term of a divided uh, Congress, and then you've got you know the Democrats controlling the House, Republicans controlling the Senate, and then the presidency. Uh, how does the USCCB strategize in terms of trying to get anything done in a hyper-polarized partisan environment in which if Team Red says something, Team Blue opposes it, no matter the wisdom of it, and vice versa. Here in Minnesota, you know, we're constitutionally mandated to craft a new budget, not just issue continuing resolutions, for example. Um, we have to get things done, and things get done. And, and, and in fact, here in, at the state level, having a divided government uh, is actually one of our sweet spots in terms of getting things done outside of the normal hyper-partisan political environment because people are forced to compromise, but it's a little different situation in Washington. So how do you plan for a, a congressional term in which you have divided government like you do? Well, it means we have to have both a good defensive and an offensive strategy. So we want to make sure that we're pushing forward the bipartisan solutions that have a chance of moving in this Congress, but that we're also laying the groundwork to make sure that we don't lose any ground that has been hard won over the past several years. And so where might some of those opportunities for playing defense might be? We talked about some of the things that you're proposing, but what about some of the things you might be opposing this congressional term? So any attempt to weaken protections against federal funding for abortion is very high on our list. We have a number of appropriations writers, um, policies that say that government, federal government money can't be used for abortion. Those are a patchwork of laws throughout the federal government that we have to make sure absolutely those are protected 100% through any bills that are going through Congress this year, making sure we're not having any new funding for abortion and federal programs. And um, we'll definitely be opposing any changes in current law that would make it more difficult for unaccompanied children and asylum seekers to access protection. Um, and then another big debate that's going to be coming up this year is on legislation called the Equality Act. USCCB opposes efforts to entrench false ideologies of human sexuality into the law through sexual orientation and gender identity categories. Um, they erode the meaning of marriage and the authentic understanding of the human person. That law is going to have a, a, a lot of implications, especially on our the ministry, the educational and social work that the church does, um, and also expands access for um, ba uh, expands bathrooms and. and um, it just has a lot of concern for us. So that'll be another big issue that we're dealing with this Congress. Well, as our listeners can tell, Lauren, you've got a really tough job. And um, it's you've also shown, and our listeners can hear, uh, how you do it with uh, externally knowledge, grace, and skill. So thank you for the, the work that you do. Um, to our listeners, please keep uh, your public policy staff who represents the church in the public arena, people like Lauren, uh, in your prayers, they've got really, really tough jobs. They have to tackle a really broad agenda, as Lauren was describing. It's a really important that we've got great people representing the church and our bishops, and Lauren is one of those. I'm blessed to work with her on a number of fronts. 
uh, with the USCCB, particularly the Religious Liberty Committee, and uh, we have a great partnership. So, Lauren, thanks for being with us today. Know that our listeners will keep you in your prayers, and uh, we were excited to hear about what's going on in Congress. So thanks very much for joining us. Great. Thank you so much, Jason and Rachel. Thank you. And oftentimes our Catholic Advocacy Network, those who are involved in that, will get action alerts from the USCCB. But those who want to really keep on top of what's going on at the federal level can go to usccb.org and under the Take Action tab at the USCCB site, see all the action alerts from the USCCB. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. We were blessed to have Lauren McCormick from the USCCB joining us to tell us a little bit about what it's like as an advocate for the church in Congress and at the same time share a little bit about what the USCCB is proposing and opposing at uh, the during this congressional term in Washington, D.C. We want to move to our, class, our segment on classic Catholic social teaching, and this is the year marks the 40th anniversary, in fact, this March, so very timely, of Pope John Paul II's encyclical Redemptor Hominis, the Redeemer of Man, in which really John Paul II set out his uh, the, the program, one might call it, for his pontificate, which is uh, really to say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and is at the forefront in thinking about how we unpack the mystery of man, building on one of his contributions to the Second Vatican Council. Only in the mystery of Jesus Christ can the mystery of man uh, be identified and unlocked, a uh, quote from Gaudium et Spes, in which uh, he really made the program and the cornerstone of his pontificate, giving people confidence and hope that Jesus Christ truly is uh, the answer to the question that is every human life, and at the same time, uh, the answer also to a crisis in civilizational confidence in the West, and at the same time, the answer to totalitarian ideologies in the East. Incredibly powerful uh, opening statement in this pontificate. Yeah, I mean, what a way to come come out of the gate, you know, and we'll, we'll, we see throughout St. John Paul II that this will be characteristic of him, of really um, keeping, I mean, that this first line here, keeping Jesus at the center, he says, the Redeemer of man, Jesus Christ, is the center of the universe and of history. You know, the opening line of his first encyclical as Pope, and I think that even just that line there sets the stage for what was his focus and what you could tell, um, and everything that he did and everything that he said was really the true most important belief um, and rooted guiding not only principle but experience of his life. The, the mysteries of the faith, the incarnation, mm-hmm. the passion, the resurrection, um, the fulcrum in history around which all of history turns, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way in which Jesus entering into history, God made man, changes the whole landscape, right? It changes the nature of things. Mm-hmm. It, ups, it upsets the normal course of being and sets history and our lives on a different trajectory, one of, as he put it so eloquently in so many contexts, particularly things like the theology of the body, Mm -hmm. the witness against communism, that entering into that constructive autonomy, that constructive freedom that we've been made for to love and serve others and bind ourselves closely to our Redeemer and our Maker. Mm -hmm. And he he connects, you know, that 
talking about that mystery of the incarnation he says going off what you're saying one of the quotes i love from this he says this act of redemption marked the high point of the history of man within god's loving plan god entered the history of humanity and as a man became an actor in that history one of the thousands of millions of human beings but at the same time unique you know so even just in that that sentence he weaves together these mysteries of the incarnation and it raises man to this unique status, you know, of we see in there the uniqueness and the, the specialness really of what God did by becoming a man. Um, but then also just the, the almost pedestrian nature of the, the idea of God is just a man, you know, um, and the combination of how that interplays with, with the mystery, you know, that's the mystery there. And, and so timely still 40 years later, it's like these, Pope's knew a thing or two, <laughs> as we struggle with our identity, mm-hmm. right? We continue to struggle with our de- identity and identity politics, for example, just gets so much more divisive um, because we've forgotten who we are, mm-hmm. right? And this is what Pope John Paul is proposing. He's proposing Jesus Christ as the answer to the question that is every human life and that we can have confidence in the church's message. And really, why does the church exist? The church exists to proclaim this fundamental gospel message. Mm-hmm. And that that message has the has the key to unlocking the mystery of every human life, why we exist, why we're here, what are we for, those great questions. But mm-hmm. at the same time, elevating us to an incredible dignity and giving us our identity, our identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. And in an era in which, well, he was writing, of course, there was still the dominance of the totalitarian ideologies of communism, which was suffocating the peoples of Eastern Europe and other parts mm-hmm. of the world. Um, but at the same time, Today, we still live in the culture of death, the throwaway culture that Pope John Paul II described in New Sewell, a culture of consumerism, um, a culture of having rather than being. And in an identity crisis, you know, where oftentimes having is more important than being, mm-hmm. he's calling us to our identity. And if we embrace that identity, what a powerful impact that would have on our lives and in our politics, especially. Right, absolutely. And for, you know, seeing ourselves as that, and then others, the impact that would have, you know, you think of in this encyclical, his, his purpose is to point to Christ, you know, through the incarnation and point to Christ as the redeemer of man. And so we think of, we think of Jesus, who is Jesus. Jesus pointed to the father. He was on journey to the father and was able to, you know, through his death and resurrection, entered into heaven and, and is seated at the right hand of the father. And the greatest reality of our life is that Jesus as man and redeemer has now opened that reality to us, right? Because he's the first, he was 100% God, 100% man. He's the first man to sit at the right hand of the father, right? Now, so now he's opened to us the reality that we are no longer slaves, but heirs, you know, um, heirs to the kingdom, you know, so that, that is the truest thing about not only me, but about my neighbor, you know, and if I am thinking of my neighbor, if I'm seeing my neighbor, those I encounter, in the world as an heir who has the father has actually raised up um, to receive exactly what Jesus, his son has received that. I mean, that changes the way that I, they think I walk, I treat people. Um, I do how I do advocacy that changes everything. We are friends of God and made for sonship, right? Mm-hmm. Sonship by uniting to our brother and our Lord Jesus Christ, who leads us to the father. And as you said, so eloquently, Rachel, uh, really opening up that mystery to that relationship with the Father and then seeing that divine imprint on others and then wanting to share with them that great gift 
mm-hmm. of divine sonship, of becoming friends with God. And, and as you said, the practical element of all those uh, beautiful concepts and ideas is, you know, who is my neighbor? Everyone's my neighbor. And what a gift we have to share. And even in the political realm, we want to share what is good for them as well. We want to work for the good mm-hmm. because they have dignity. We want to protect them at the very natural level of, you know, having, giving them, protecting their lives, but giving them access to education, giving them access to healthcare, meaningful work that is consistent with their dignity, religious freedom. Uh, the protection of the natural family is that place in which we're properly nurtured so that they can embrace more easily that divine sonship. So uh, advocacy matters and theology matters. And I think this is why Pope John Paul set out programmatically at the beginning to help us remember who we are as as sons and daughters and as redeemed in Christ Jesus. So beautiful and powerful and cyclical. We'll be back in a moment with our bricklayer segment. We're oftentimes wondering what can we do? How do we impact the world around us? How do we take that beautiful gift of grace that we've been given that uh, because we in baptism, we become sons and daughters of Christ. We want to share that gift with others. We can do so in so many ways, uh, loving God and loving our neighbor. But the political realm is one way in which we can love our neighbor by working for structures um, and laws that serve human dignity and the common good. So what can we do in that context? That's why the bricklayer segment is an important part of this context con- uh, podcast to give you concrete tips uh, about the ways in which you can stay active as a faithful citizen uh, building a just society. Rachel, what are in the heels, coming in, again, coming after Catholics at the Capitol right in the middle of the legislative session, what, what's important for people to know and do at this point in time? Yeah, so we really need to um, equip ourselves, right? Equip ourselves with what is going on. As Jason said, we're well underway in session and bills are being introduced. So as I mentioned earlier, this means that priorities are starting to be put forth in front of your legislators. Um, So these things um, that are are being introduced are possible things that could be signed into law at the end of the legislative session here. And so it's important for us to know what those are. Right. It's important not just to know um, exactly maybe the one issue that you're concerned about, but but what are the legislators hearing? Right. What are the things that are be putting that are being put in front of them as policy priorities here in our state? So I think knowing those gives us a good idea of what our legislators are looking at and also gives us a good idea of what are the concerns of those around us. What are the concerns of uh, Minnesota? And so really easy way to do this. You can go to our website, mncatholic.org to find our bill tracker. And so what we do is we take um, important priorities and we keep track of all the bills. There's many, many bills introduced um, here in Minnesota during session. And so we keep track of those um, and, and kind of take some of those top priorities and put them on a bill tracker for you so you can follow really easily what's happening um, and not only what's happening when the bills are introduced, but what, what happens to those bills throughout the process because um, some don't make it, some continue to make it. Um, so it, it really shows you um, what bills are up there, what issues are up there. And so to find that, you can go to mncatholic.org forward slash action center. 
Um, and so that's where you can find the bill tracker. And along with that, the MN Catholic um, website um, has a lot of great resources for you, background on issues, um, a, a link to sign up for the Catholic Advocacy Network if you have not done that yet. But it's just a really great resource for you. So I would encourage you, both as you're, as you're looking at those bills, if there's an issue that you're interested in or you don't understand, um, spend some time on our website, you know, using those resources and, um, and using those tools to really get educated. Now, there's thousands of bills that are introduced every session by legislators, and we encourage Catholics to get involved on any of them that they think that you think are important. You know, building a highway is an important issue for many people, and especially in rural areas where their transportation options are not uh, extensive. So even those issues involving funding for highway projects can be important issues for your community. But what we do on the Bill Tracker, the Catholic Advocacy Network Bill Tracker, is to highlight a few key issues that we think are really crucial for life and dignity uh, in Minnesota or which illustrate an important pastoral and uh, Catholic social teaching initiative that we think is really important for reframing the conversation around certain issues. So the Bill Tracker will highlight those bills, and there's you know roughly 20 of them in the broader scheme of about three, four, five thousand that get introduced every legislative session. So really a small percentage, precisely because it's not the role of the bishops uh, to um, you know transform the public arena. It's, it's the role of the church and the institutional church to form the conscience of the lay faithful so that they can have those principles and bring those into the public arena. But what we do as a church institution, as a ministry of the bishops, is to highlight some things as a matter of their teaching office and teaching responsibility that are so crucial to the common good and human dignity that we want to bring those to the attention of Catholics. And that's why the bill tracker exists in the first place. We're busy. You don't often have time to research all the issues. The great thing about the bill tracker is it gives you a link right to a bill's site on the Minnesota legislature website where you can learn about the authors. Uh, You can learn about where it's at in the political process, which is super valuable. You can even uh, sign up on that page through our link to the Minnesota legislature to receive updates about a particular bill. We're blessed in Minnesota with a great legislative website, and our bill tracker at mncatholic.org is a great portal through that to help you distill some of that information. Mm -hmm. And just to go off some of the things that Jason said, if if there is an issue or a bill that you see that you're passionate about that, um, you know, the— Catholic Conference of the USCCB hasn't put an official statement out on, you do not need a green light to take action on what you're passionate about, you know, so we want to form your conscience. So if you see something um, that you're passionate about and that you want to make a difference on, whether it's building a highway or something else, um, you do not need permission uh, from from anyone to go ahead and, and step forward and, and take a step on that. Yeah, we just try to make it easy for people as mm-hmm. much as we can yeah. because, again, people are busy. You don't know, always know mm-hmm. what the bit with the issues are. But um, that's in the, also just on what Rachel was saying underscores the importance of signing up for the mm-hmm. Catholic Advocacy Network through our website, mncatholic.org, because not only can you find the bills on our website, but also we'll send you alerts when they're moving and when we need action on them to help them pass or be defeated at the Capitol. So that's the great benefit of the Catholic Advocacy Network is it gives you um, a timelier sense of when action is needed and then allows you to communicate with your legislators with really just the click of the mouse. So mncatholic.org is some one-stop shopping for faithful citizenship here in Minnesota. Well, thank you again to our sponsor, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council. Uh, the Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. We're grateful for their partnership as we produce these Bridge Builder podcasts. We're also grateful to Relevant Radio 1330 AM for allowing us the use of their recording studio. 
And thank you for listening. Uh, please make sure to share this podcast with all your friends and family. And finally, we like to close each podcast with some beautiful sacred music. We close great conversation with great music produced by folks locally here in Minnesota. And here is a beautiful piece of music called Eustace Germinabit. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Performed by the Gregorian Chant School of St. John's Abbey and University. Eustace Germinabit, the just will blossom. This marks the feast of St. Joseph on March 19th. Thanks very much for listening. God bless your day. Oh.